0: Hey there everybody, welcome to the Der Shachai Experiment, the show where we take the themes of scripture and we stack them up together and then ask the question, what can we learn from this? Well, last week we began a three-part series on the tests of Joseph. Joseph was sold by his brothers. He was in shame for 13 years and has only been out of prison and lifted up to this new position for a little over seven years. When his brothers arrived in Egypt to get food, Joseph initially threw his brothers into prison for three days. And when he let them out, he did everything that he could to get them to betray the brother that he kept in Egypt with him, Simeon. He put money back in their sacks in a dual purpose. First, to remind them of when they sold him into slavery. Lose a brother, gain some silver. Second, the reason that is alluded to in the text was to cause them to fear being accused of theft when they return. The next thing that he did was he required them to bring Benjamin back with them. And this stipulation was also multi-purpose. It's first to test the relationship between Jacob and his sons. Did Jacob trust a single one of these boys enough to allow his precious Benjamin to leave with them? Not just to leave... But to go to a place that's openly hostile to them. Second, Joseph wishes to witness firsthand the relationship between Benjamin and his brothers. Do they treat Benjamin like they treated him so long ago? And that's going to be the focus of this week's text. And oddly enough, whether intended or not, this stipulation tested Jacob most of all. Was Jacob willing to let go of his last reminder of Rachel in order to save the others? Could he give up his loved son after losing Joseph, or would he grasp hold of him in spite of the deadly fallout that would result? Was Jacob content to allow Simeon to disappear forever for the sake of saving Benjamin? His initial reaction to the news of Simeon's imprisonment was one of resigned loss. Joseph is lost, and Simeon is lost—they are equal in Jacob's mind. And we found in this that the very first test was not of the brothers. But it was a test of Jacob himself. How had Jacob responded to the loss of Joseph, and how would he respond when the situation was in some way repeated? All that happened in the narrative last week was that the boys were sent home, and they eventually returned, and yet in that little bit of story so much ground was covered. This week we continue with part two of this three-week topic. The brothers are back in Egypt with Benjamin in tow. They have met the steward of Joseph's house and are being led there for unknown reasons. Their fear of being detained because of the returned money has been addressed with the comforting or perhaps ominous statement that God has blessed them. Had he, though? Or was this a miraculous reminder of the sins of the past? In the brother's place, I would have to imagine that this is not the favorable omen that we usually take it as. They're all remembering their hidden sin, the sin that God sees and is now punishing them for. They have no possibility of conceiving that at this moment that this supposed blessing from God is in fact a test that is set before them by a man. And now with this reminder that God is actively involved in what is occurring, let's read this week's text and then discuss the second phase of the testing of Joseph. Genesis 43 24 forty four seventeen. And the man brought the men into Joseph's house, and gave them water, and they washed their feet, and gave their donkeys fodder. And they made their present ready for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they were to eat there. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand, and they bowed down before him to the earth. And he asked them about their welfare, and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they said, Your servant, our father, is in good health. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads down, and did obeisance. And he lifted his eyes, and he saw his brother, Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, Elohim, show favor to you, my son. And Yosef hurried, for his emotions were deeply moved toward his brother. And he looked for a place to weep, and went into his room, and wept there. Then he washed his face, and came out, and controlled himself, and said, Serve the food. And they set him a place by himself, and them by themselves, and the Mitzrites who ate with him by themselves, For the Mitzrites could not eat food with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Mitzrites. And they sat before him the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at each other in astonishment, and he took portions to them from before him. But Benjamin's portions was five times as much as any of theirs, and they feasted, and they drank with him. And he commanded the one over his house, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food as they are able to bear, and put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of his sack of the youngest, and the silver for his grain. And he did according to the word of Yosef, which he spoke. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away, they and their donkeys. And when they had gone out of the city, not having gone far, Yosef said to the one over his house, Rise up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is this not the one from which my master drinks, and with which he indeed divines? You have done evil in what you have done. So he overtook them and spoke these words to them. And they said to him, Why does my master say these words? Far be it from us that your servants should do according to this word. See, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver, which we found in the mouths of our sack. How then should we steal silver or gold from your master's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, he shall die, and we shall become my master's slaves as well. And he said, Now also let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found becomes my slave, and you are innocent. And they hurried each man, let down his sack to the ground, and each opened his sack. And he searched with the oldest first and with the youngest last, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And they tore their garments, and each man loaded his donkey and went back to the city. And Yehuda and his brothers came to Yosef's house, and he was still there. And they fell before him on the ground, and Yosef said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Did you not know that a man like me indeed divines? And Yehuda said, What do we say to my master? What do we speak, or how do we clear ourselves? Elohim has found out the crookedness of your servants. See, we are my master's slaves, both we and he also, with whom the cup was found. But he said, Far be it from me to do this, the man in whose hand the cup was found. He becomes my slave, and you go up in peace to your father. Well, the brothers are all back together. Simeon has been returned, and everyone is waiting for what will happen next. As the brothers enter Joseph's home, they're given some time to get themselves ready, some time to think and perhaps even have a last few minute words to each other before their audience with the strange foreign official that's taken notice of them. They arrange themselves, and they wait for what's to come. They have no idea what to expect, but that reminder that God has blessed them with their silver is still ringing in their guilty ears. And so they make the present that they have already brought ready. The balm, the honey, spices, myrrh, nuts, and almonds that they packed up earlier in the chapter at Jacob's command. The present that was intended to soften this official's attitude towards them. And when Joseph arrives, they present the present and they bow before him. And Joseph politely asks about their father. Perhaps not so much out of politeness, but rather out of true concern. Joseph knows the pain that he's putting his own father through by requiring Benjamin to come to him. And so he says, Benjamin is here. Is father still alive? Did he die at the thought of giving him up? Did you perhaps kill him in order to get Benjamin here and save your own skins? Regardless, Joseph's fears are put aside as they respond that Jacob is indeed in good health and alive. So Benjamin is here in their care with their father's knowledge and permission a good start and Jacob at least trusts one of them with his favored son it is only now that Joseph takes in Benjamin fully and Joseph then speaks cryptically to Benjamin God be gracious to you my son I think the way that he says this this cryptic statement he's he's saying you're going to need God's grace to make it through this Your brothers are ruthless, and in order for you to return with them, in order for them to pass these upcoming tests, you're going to need all of God's grace upon you. And Joseph is so moved by emotion at this that he's forced to retreat to his own rooms and to weep before regaining his composure and returning. I've always read this episode as though it was Joseph's being so happy at seeing Benjamin again, he just couldn't help himself. But perhaps there's something different here. Joseph knows what he's about to do to Benjamin. His plan is made up. Perhaps he's weeping because he knows what Benjamin is about to go through in the upcoming hours. Perhaps he's weeping because he does not believe that his brothers are going to actually pass its tests. And he's sorry for the betrayal that Benjamin is about to face. It's that same betrayal that he himself had to face 14 years previously. Joseph returns and he orders the food to be served. The room is split. Egyptians sit on one side, the sons of Jacob on the other, and Joseph alone between them, the unifying force in the room. And this little picture gives us a glimpse of the role of our Messiah, the one who brings together the nations and the sons of Jacob in one banquet. And then he seats the brothers according to their age, oldest to the youngest. This is a common practice in the ancient Near East, but for Joseph to know the order of their ages is something that shocks them. How is it that this man knows so much about us? And then Joseph does something that was not acceptable in any culture of the day. He takes food from his own table, and he gives a portion to each of the brothers. Picture him walking down the table, this master of Egypt serving them food from his own plate each brother in turn receiving an equal portion, until the final, the youngest. Joseph honors the youngest with five times the portion given to his brothers. Now this action would not have been overlooked. Their own father went against custom and favored the youngest among them. And now, now this strange man not only knows their birth order, but he's also honoring the youngest far beyond any of them. In an honor-shame culture, this was an action of honor towards Benjamin. And because honor-shame economy is a zero-sum economy where there's a limited amount of honor to go around, honoring one person can only occur by shaming another. The sons of Jacob were being shamed in front of everyone. But Benjamin was being honored. Now, in the old days, this would have drawn hostility from the brothers. I mean, Simeon and Levi, they destroyed a city for the sake of honor. Reuben has slept with his father's concubine for the sake of power and honor. All of the brothers have participated in selling Joseph for the sake of honor. And now, now they're all being shamed deliberately. We aren't specifically told this in the text, but the brothers would not have missed this slight. What is it that Joseph is doing here? He's trying to break the brothers' bond to Benjamin. He wants them to give up Benjamin later when an accusation is leveled. He's plying their egos to turn them against Benjamin even more than they already are. Failure of this test includes the brothers throwing up their hands in the air in exasperation and leaving Benjamin behind. Keep this not-nosed brat, daddy's little favorite. He's just like Joseph. We're always shamed around Rachel's son, and now... We have a chance to be rid of him, so let's cast him off like so much baggage. And it's in this tension that they feast and they drink the day away and they end up spending the night in Joseph's house. And in the night, Joseph takes another shot at the unity of the brothers. He commands not only put the money back once again as he did last time, but this time his own silver cup is to be put into Benjamin's bag. And then as the morning dawns, the brothers, they're sent on their merry way. And as far as they're concerned, everything went amazing. They had a great meal with the crazy guy. They weren't arrested for stealing the last time they were there. They got all of the food that they could carry. Simeon's been returned, and to top it all off, Benjamin is still alive and returning with us. Success, victory, we made it through. God is with us. That could have gone so horribly wrong. And then they hear someone approaching from behind and the other shoe falls. Now comes an accusation of theft, the thing that they had been so intent on avoiding. They'd done everything. They'd gone so far as to bring a presence to this man to avoid just such an accusation. But it's not an accusation of stealing the silver coins that they will soon still find in their bags, but rather it's the theft of a silver Cup, The Brothers are rightly upset at this accusation. Why do you say this? We didn't steal anything. We even brought double silver back with us, so that this accusation couldn't be made and Now you're making it anyway. We're innocent, and we're so sure of our innocence that we will wager our lives against this charge with whoever this is found. He shall die, and we shall become your servants. There's a surety of this response, that there is no possible way that this is with us. It's the same response that Jacob made to Laban when he was accused of taking the idols out of Laban's house. And so the search begins. As the search begins, the presence of the silver in their sacks would not have gone unnoticed. Once again, the thought is there. Lose a brother, gain some silver. Once again, from oldest to youngest, sack by sack, and each the same. And finally, Benjamin's sack is explored, and what do you know? There in Benjamin's sack is the missing goblet. Now, growing up, I watched a show that many of you probably also watched, or at least familiar with. It was a show named Sesame Street. One of the segments that was featured in this show regularly was one where a series of items were displayed. Three of them would have something in common, and the final one would be fundamentally different. The idea is to develop the skill of grouping items of like kind together. One of these things is not like the other. This entire trip of the brothers down into Egypt has been a game of one of these things is not like the other. What was preventing the trip in the first place? All ten had gone before, but now, now they need Benjamin. When they're greeted by Joseph as they enter his house, Benjamin is greeted and even blessed while the others are kind of passed over. At dinner, all of the brothers were given the same except Benjamin. Benjamin gets five times more. And now the sacks are being searched and all of the brothers have the same except Benjamin. Joseph is dedicated to his cause of singling Benjamin out from among them in every way possible singling him out for honor singling him out for shame reminding them he is not like you one of these boys is not like the other one of these boys is so spoiled that he thinks he can take anything that he wants he has this entitlement mindset that is now going to cause all sorts of trouble now this isn't an accurate assessment because we the reader we know that this is a setup but the brothers don't know this This little brat, why would he do such a thing? Always thinks that he's the best. And then he does this? He steals a cup? Are you kidding me? How easy to just walk away and leave him to his fate. How easy to simply say, good riddance. Dad, your favoritism was misplaced. It always has been. And now it's your death. It's on you. It's your fault that you favored these worthless brats of Rachel. Just walk away. That's all it would take. Simply walk away and let Benjamin to his own fate. They could be free of this constant shadow that's been cast on them by the sons of Rachel. This constant shame of being passed over for one of your younger brothers. Do they care? Would you? If one of your brothers was caught up in a crime and all of the evidence pointed to their guilt, the brothers whose shadow you'd been stuck in, the one who you don't like, the one who disagrees with you, the one who grates on your every nerve. And I don't mean simply blood brothers. Put yourself in these men's shoes with your brothers in the family of Israel. One of your brothers has been accused of a heinous crime. What do you do? Even if they did do it, what's your responsibility to them? You can simply abandon your brother who's been accused. It's simple. I've seen it happen. I know a person in this situation even now. Accused of a crime and then abandoned by nearly everyone because of the nature of the crime that he's being accused of. Once close friends have become enemies, family will no longer speak to him. He's been kicked out of his church and told to never return. All because of a vicious accusation by a man who has since been arrested under similar charges for the similar crime. The thing is, in this man's case, he's produced the evidence that should clear his name. And yet the charges stand because the state doesn't want to look like it's soft on this type of crime. And he was very publicly accused by state officials. If he is cleared, the entire sting operation that he was caught in comes crashing down. Even if he clears his name, the damage is done. His family is broken. Brothers are no longer speaking to one another based on an accusation by an unbeliever, someone outside of the family. So, what do you do when this happens? What do the brothers do? They don't abandon Benjamin, even though the evidence suggests that he is indeed guilty. And led by Judah, they all return back to egypt all of them go back into the mouth of the lion it's gone bad but it could certainly get worse they're all going back to stand before this crazy man who's been nothing but trouble to them why for the sake of the one who's been nothing but trouble adding trouble upon trouble not exactly once again, before Joseph, Judah then makes an offer that's generous but unnecessary. He says, we will all be our slaves. Take us all into your service. I bet not all the brothers were on board with that idea. I bet there was a bit of what? Us become slaves for, for Benjamin? I find it hard to imagine all ten of the brothers simply standing there and not reacting to this offer. Simply placidly accepting the possibility of becoming a slave themselves. And most of the reaction from the brothers would have been in the negative. Besides, from Joseph's point of view, this is a worthy offer. But it doesn't accomplish his purpose. His purpose is to take Benjamin out of a family that's dangerous. A family that doesn't really want him around. It's either that or the brothers prove that they've indeed changed. So he responds, no, only the one who's guilty will remain my slave. The rest of you, you're free to go. In fact, he says, free to go to your father in peace. Shalom. Well, they know that if they return without Benjamin, there would be no peace at home. It's at this point that the old-natured brothers would have packed up and gone. In fact, the old-natured brothers, they wouldn't have returned to talk to Joseph. But these aren't the brothers of old. They've experienced what it was like to have their father mourn Joseph. They'd experienced their father mourning Rachel and Leah as well. They know that if they return without Benjamin, Jacob is going to die because of the just unending losses that he's faced. He will die completely brokenhearted after living a life that was too difficult to bear anymore. As I said last week, his life has been nothing but one loss after another since he arrived in Canaan. He simply could not take another loss. And here ends the for this week. Once again, it's a cliffhanger that will resolve next week. Once again, it's an impossible situation. What argument could they possibly make for their brother's release? I'll give you a hint. It's contained in the next 16 verses. And I encourage you, read ahead. You don't have to wait till next week for this to resolve itself. Please read it and consider just what it is that Judah's argument consists of what is the hinge of his argument and we'll talk about that next week but for now let's return to this parsha and let's examine it it's an entire scope and perhaps a bit more so this parsha contains a topic that's been discussed on so many previous occasions already that has become one of the central themes of the book of genesis for this project all too often we simply look at genesis as simply the beginning the launch pad for all that has come before, and that's true. In fact, it's essential to the rest of the Bible and the story that unfolds in its pages in our own history. But there's another feature of Genesis that we miss when we view it in this way alone. Because Genesis isn't just the beginning of a much larger scope of history story. Genesis is itself a self-contained story. A single story told end-to-end, and throughout this story a multitude of themes has been revealed. So, as with any story, a problem is introduced in the beginning, and by the end of the book, the problem appears to be taken care of. Now, if we only had the book of Genesis, we would see this way more readily. But then when we add in Exodus, suddenly Genesis is just the beginning, and all that is accomplished by the end of the book is undone as Exodus is begun. But there is one storyline that's a bit obvious when considered. And that theme is one that's greatly highlighted in this passage and will be closed off next week. But since next week, we'll be looking at something else. We're going to talk of this particular theme once again today. So what is it that I'm talking about? It's the human interaction with shame. What is shame? Well, Dictionary.com defines it in this way. It's it's a painful feeling arising from the consciousness of something dishonorable, improper, ridiculous, etc. done by oneself or another. It's a painful emotion that arises when you recognize that something is wrong. This emotion is the very first emotion that humanity experienced. In fact, in Genesis 2.25, it says, And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed the very last thing stated about them before the story of the tree and then just after the story the next thing we read is this genesis 3 7 then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths this action it's a cover-up classic reaction to being shamed in fact both of them in their shame they're working together to cover their shame and then god approaches and we read In Genesis 3.10, and he said, I heard the sound of you in my garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. Their second emotion was fear. Why? Because I was naked, and I hid myself. I was afraid of my shame being revealed. And when God presses the shame and that fear, they lead to blame casting. It wasn't my fault, it was theirs. Someone else made me do it. I can't be held responsible for this shame myself. In fact, it's not even my shame. It's their shame. And in the next story, Abel is accepted and Cain is not. Cain is in shame that his brother's being accepted and elevated when he is the firstborn. And he is the one who is entitled to honor. Now, rather than fear, he expresses anger at this shame because he has an outside source, his brother, that's causing his shame. Once again, when pressed, Cain casts away the shame. It's not my duty to watch over my brother. Fast forward a few chapters. Noah gets drunk and ends up naked in his tent. His son walks in on him and witnesses his shame. Now witnessing the shame itself, it's not a problem in and of itself. But then he goes out and he tells others about the shame that he witnesses. And suddenly there's a problem. The shame of another is now being used to gain personal honor. And on and on and on. Story after story of one character after another being brought to shame in one form or another. And that person reacting in an unrighteous way and bringing further shame. Lot and Keterleomer and the king of Sodom. Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, and Ishmael. Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Laban, Leah and Rachel. Over and over, it's the same story. as shame leading to a sinful and destructive responses. And so when we get to the stories of Jacob's sons, they start the same way. Reuben exploiting the grief of his father in order to shame him. Simeon and Levi killing a city because of the shame of a sister who got frisky before a covenant was made. Joseph heaping shame on his brothers in the form of evil speech and dream interpretation egged on by his own father's insistence that Joseph be the favored son. Judah, sentencing a woman to death because she did not uphold her end of the covenant and brought shame on his family. The story of shame goes from one end to the other of Genesis, and the thing that Genesis ends with is the prescription for shame. It is a self-contained story in this aspect, and as such, the theme of shame is covered completely in the pages of Genesis. Because of these last two, Joseph and Judah, these brothers, they reveal the solution to what occurred in the beginning. They reveal how to overcome shame, this great enemy of mankind that leads to so many evils. There are two things that Joseph and Judah model that can overcome shame. In the case of Joseph, he had to accept his shame. The time in slavery, the time in prison, They were just payment, but I believe they were more. Joseph had to realize that he did not deserve the great position that he later received. He did not deserve the position he was destined for. He was not innocent of anything. He deserved only shame. And there's a freedom in that because shame itself, it's not sin. Once we can realize that we deserve only shame, we can despise any further shame with this realization shame becomes a tool that can be used to further the kingdom of god with this shame we can empathize with everyone else who is also in shame and with this realization one can do what it is that judah does in the next chapter he asks for the shame of his brother to be placed on his own shoulders he says allow me to suffer his shame i will bear his shame because the fact of the matter is, is that I deserve the shame and I know it. Benjamin, he doesn't know how to handle shame. And so if shame were to land on him, it would ruin him to live in that shame. He would succumb to the many various evil reactions of shame. Fear, anger, gossip, blame. His shame will lead him to become guilty. To sin not just against another person, but against God. And no greater love has any man than this than to give up his life for a friend. We usually understand this to mean death as Yeshua demonstrated, the martyr's death, or the Savior's death. But it doesn't say to give one's death for a friend. It says to give one's life for a friend. To take the shame of another and willingly bear it on your own shoulders for the rest of your life so that they might retain their place of honor and that's one of the things that yeshua did for us on the cross he took our shame away we no longer need to be ashamed that painful feeling that accompanies some failure whether it be a failure of honor a failure of duty a failure of commitment a failure to fulfill some societal norm a failure of simple ridiculousness or impropriety a failure to live up to a standard set by our Father. Each of these, they bear shame. Some of it's deserved. Some of it's imposed, either by self or by society. But each and every one of them's not a problem. And how is it that Joseph and Judah overcame their shame? They both accepted the shame that was cast on them. One accepted the shame that they didn't know that they had and the other accepted a shame that was incurred by another. And what means did they use? Joseph Joseph trusted God. He remained loyal to God's covenant, and he avoided sin. Shame resulted, but shame is deserved by all of us. We each deserve shame. But Judah, on the other hand, Judah focused on the will of his father even when that will contradicted his own will, even when his father's will meant that he would not receive honor. If Benjamin returns whole, Benjamin inherits. If Benjamin is lost, Judah does not inherit. Judah made himself vulnerable to shame by simply taking on the task of caring for Benjamin. And when the moment came, he stood in the gap and he accepted his brother's shame. Because of his father, And the will of his father. Nothing in this story is about fairness because fairness is a dream. It's an illusion. It does not exist in this corrupt world. And so for the sake of the family, for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the world, we can accept shame and we can bear it gracefully. Shame itself, it leads to many evils, and yet it is something that we do not need to be concerned with. It only leads to evil when we acknowledge and we give it room in our lives. When you allow shame to make your decisions for you, if Yeshua's decisions had been based on honor and shame, he would have never allowed himself to be publicly beaten. He would never have carried his cross through the streets of Jerusalem. He would not have allowed himself to be stripped of all clothing. Get the movies out of your mind. He was naked. The purpose of an execution on the cross was not only that it was effective and painful. It was the greatest shame. Absolute shame. There was no further down to go. Prisoner? Slave? These things were nothing compared to crucifixion on a cross. Shamed so much that you ceased even looking human before you died the last thing anyone sees of you. So if Yeshua made decisions based on shame, he would have failed in his mission. It was God's will that he be shamed. And in being shamed, he was elevated to a place of great honor. And both Joseph and Judah experienced that same thing. Joseph, he was raised to sit at the right hand of the king, only once he had accepted his shame and found his way to live with it judah was given the honor of leadership by his father put in charge of the family from that day forward the honor of the firstborn that translates later into the honor of being the father of kings and we must learn to do this ourselves genesis begins with the story the man in the fertile land a place given to him by God, living in peace with all of creation. And Genesis ends with this story, a family in a fertile land, a place given to them by God, living in peace with all of creation. Why is it that these bookends are possible? Why are we given a glimpse of this reversal of Eden at the very end of Genesis? I believe it's because they were finally able to live without their shame. Guilt brings shame, but through Yeshua we're no longer guilty, and the shame of being guilty can't stay in His presence. But shame brings shame as well. Failures, the trappings of cars, clothes, house, shoes, etc. The shame of biology, whether it be nose, ears, a mole in a weird place, or some sort of deformity. A shame of personality. Even a lack of reflexes or strength. And so many other things can all be sources of shame. And we don't deserve shame for these meaningless and perceived shortcomings. But we're all guilty, and the shame of guilt is ours to own. And in owning it before the one who became shame for you, you can be set free from it. You can be given new creation even now. And that new creation comes in many ways. But one primary way is that we can live in this field, this garden, and not be shamed. Regardless of what has happened. Regardless of what will happen. And that's a freedom that cannot be purchased with anything but the blood of Yeshua. And the cost for it was too great to bear. And yet it was given freely to all who asked for it. And once we've escaped our own shame, we become free to work for the kingdom of God. We become freer to seek the kingdom of life. In our search for life, it becomes easier to accomplish. But we must always continue to ask. We must always continue to dare to seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to seeklifesc.com. That's seeklifesc.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.